Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 3, 1 through 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Amen. For many of us, uh, I don't know if all of us, but for many of us, uh, the whole notion, this, this genre that's become like a thing out in the world, uh, it's become very popular uh, for many, the origin story, right? We are intrigued by an origin story. There's something actually uh, very clarifying when we, you know, we've invested time, and I think the origin stories mostly have become popular with, uh, with our favorite superheroes, but we become very invested in these superheroes, and we become very invested in who they are and what they do, and so as a result, we become very invested in uh, their origin story. We discover what brought them to the place of becoming that superhero. And understanding where they come from actually gives important context for understanding why they are the way they are 
what they do, why they do it, the ways that they think, the ways that they live. It's a very important backdrop often for understanding the moment. Now, the book of Genesis is humanity's origin story. The entire book, uh, but especially the, the first few chapters of the book, provides us very important and necessary context for understanding how we got here, why we are the way we are, and maybe, more importantly, also where we are headed into the future. Now, last week, if you were with us, uh, we started uh, our series called In the Beginning, which has been a look at our origin story. And what we did last week is we looked at the creation of the universe, a creation that is full of meaning and purpose, of dignity, that there's this creation that God made good. It's, it's a creation that God made with intentionality. In the beginning, there was, we saw, no sickness or death or evil or injustice. However, even though that was the case when God first created, we also know that those things are rampant now. They are pervasive today. And so what we want to look at today is how exactly that came to be. How is it that we fell from such a perfect creation where God was fully and completely dwelling with his creation, particularly with humanity, to now this experience of alienation that we often feel? Well, Genesis 3 provides us the origin story to how we've come to this point. And so what I want to do today, I want to center our consideration about this fall uh, by looking at the central question, a central question posed here in Genesis 3, particularly in verse 9 of our passage, where God asks the question, where are you? That question actually provides much context on how we understand the fall, how we understand sin. And to show what I mean by that and why it's such an important question, why it's a revealing one, let's just take a look at what's happening around this question. Okay, so let's take a look at what happens before that question. Then let's take a look at the question itself. And then let's take a look at what occurs after that question. Okay, so first, What's taking place before the question is asked? Uh, again, just to quickly recap, if you recall, God in Genesis 1 and 2, which we looked at last week, created the universe. And as part of that creation, he made a centerpiece, which is humanity. Adam and Eve made in his image. They were called to be co-creators with him by cultivating the good creation that he had given, particularly in this garden paradise of Eden. But in the middle of that garden, and we see this now in our passage, God places this tree, uh, this tree, as the story goes, of which Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat, right? They weren't supposed to touch it. However, as we just heard read in Genesis 3, there's a serpent that comes along and attempts to deceive Eve into believing that she could eat from that forbidden tree. And they have this back and forth, but in the end, in verse 5, uh, the serpent convinces her that she should disobey God and instead eat from the tree. Verse 5 says that the serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that statement, right? This is, this is the statement that makes the turn for her. This is what causes her to fall into disobedience. That statement unto itself could be an entire separate sermon. I won't go into all the depths of what we see there just in that one statement alone, but don't miss the fact that Eve was convinced 
to disobey God by that statement. Meaning she was not allured simply by this fruit that she desired. What caused the disobedience was the alluring promise that she could be like God if she would just simply disobey God. And this is actually one of the great tragedies of the fall. It's, it's one of the great perversions of the image of God in us because God gave us the capacity to know him in ways that the rest of the creation cannot know him. He called us to be co-creators with him as cultivators of this good creation. He made us in his image to reflect his character and his nature. But then we take the image of God in us and believe this special capacity as a special creation in some way then provides us the authority and the right to not just be a reflection of God, but rather to be God. It's this desire to rule over ourselves, to be our own masters, to live as we want, all while using our God-given capabilities and capacities to reject him. It's the great insult of the fall, the rejection of God in the garden, and every day of our lives ever since, it's had severe consequences for those who have rejected him because we've now severed that relationship that we were supposed to have with our creator. And here, as a result of this very tempting proposal to be like God, Eve eats from the tree that God told Adam not to eat from. She disobeyed God, and subsequently, Adam follows suit And this is what we call the fall. Now, as a result of this disobedience, Adam and Eve, uh, for the first time, the passage tells us, discovered that they were naked. Now, that's another important thing to, to note. How exactly does one simply just discover their nakedness? I mean, actually, in in chapter 2, verse 25, it actually says that they were naked, but they felt no shame. What we're actually seeing here in chapter 3, verse 7, explains to us that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. What exactly does that mean? What's taking place? What does it mean for one's eyes to be opened? Well, we know how that works, right? We use that language. When your eyes are opened to something, our eyes are not physically being opened, but rather we are awakened to something that we did not previously know or understand. Adam and Eve now had a very, real, a very real realization of their nakedness. What is nakedness in the Bible? Well, the word naked, it certainly can mean kind of the physical nakedness as we uh, imagine, but it also has this sense of meaning uh, to be laid bare. Right? The word has to do with being fully known or fully exposed or vulnerable. But again, as we just said, nothing physical changed. It's important to see that nothing physical has changed for them, and so the tension that's created says something more than just a physical nakedness. We are supposed to see here that Adam and Eve, they had no problem being fully and completely vulnerable until their disobedience. And now this vulnerability that they have is horrifying. Because now there is something they don't want seen. Because they've now become ashamed of who they are when everything is laid bare. Shame is at the middle of this tension. I mean, why are they ashamed? Why do we at times feel shame? What exactly is shame? 
Well, Kirk Thompson, he's a, a, psychi- a psychiatrist uh, who's done a lot of research in the area of shame. And uh, several years ago, he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, where he defines shame as this, right? Very important definition. He says that shame is the feeling of not being good enough. He goes on and he says that uh, physiologically, the way that it works, shame is our system's way of warning of impending abandonment. And we tend to respond to it by relationally moving away from others rather than toward them. In other words, in many ways, shame comes as a result of us fearing exclusion, abandonment, because we feel like we are not good enough. And being abandoned and rejected is one of the greatest fears that all of us have in life. And think about it, one of our greatest fears in life is for people to know me, like really know me, and as a result of knowing me, reject me. Of course, on the flip side of that, one of our greatest desires is for someone to know me, like really know me, but then as a result of knowing me, accept me and love me. I mean, one of the greatest feelings in the world is when you can open up to someone about yourself, tell them your your greatest dreams or your deepest, darkest secrets, and then to hear them say, thank you for sharing that with me. I love you for sharing that with me. I affirm you. This is the kind of thing we so desperately desire. It's exhilarating. Why? Because we were not built to be fully open and vulnerable and then be rejected. We were built to be fully vulnerable, known, and accepted. It's not in our nature to hide away, but rather we want to be known and accepted. But we also know that this is usually not the case. This is usually not what happens. Instead, what often happens is we share who we are, and as a result, we experience shame because rejection always sits in front of us. Exclusion is a possibility. The fear that no one will love me or accept me, and that, in the end, I won't be good enough. And so instead of being fully seen, we hide away. So, if shame is the result of not feeling good enough, and as a result of uh, fearing rejection, how are Adam and Eve, in this moment, in this story, not good enough? How were they not what they ought to have been? Well, for them, they were created for a purpose, right? a purpose that we, we looked at last week. They were created for that purpose, and they didn't live up to it. If you remember, one of the things that we said about what God accomplishes in creation is that through creation, and as a result of what he has given us, one of the things that we're called to be and do is to reflect his glory, to make known his glory, you know, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, I've shared this before, but the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is simply, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, the answer to that question is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what we saw last week. This is what we are called to be. This is our ultimate purpose. But through their disobedience, they did not glorify God because they believed in themselves they could find the enjoyment that only God could give. They looked, they desired to be their own God. They took glory away from God. They insulted God by using the image that he had given of himself in them to glorify themselves, to find fulfillment and enjoyment in themselves. 
This is what caused them to feel shame. They rejected the purpose that they were supposed to have embraced. That said, let me stop there just for a second. Because over the years as a pastor, some have actually pointed out that this is the problem with religion and Christianity in particular. That people believe that there is this purpose that, they're, that they should be living up to, that God somehow gives them, but then they can't live up to it. And this is the core issue of religion. It just, religion produces shame. It just constantly makes you feel like you're not good enough because you can never actually appease God. And so as a result, the pushback would just be to them, or for, for them, to me, would say, isn't it just the case that we should get rid of those ideas of God having standards or purposes and instead discover our own purpose? To not worry about what God says about us or what religious people say about us, but rather to look at myself, find good within myself because I am enough. I would argue, no. That's not actually going to work. We actually won't feel good enough by simply believing that we are enough because we can't actually determine our own purpose. As much as we may assume ourselves capable of doing so, we can't actually determine our own purpose because purpose, right, what gives our life meaning, is almost always based on external standards that we can't live up to, not, like, not our internal desires. Those standards are almost always external norms that we're trying to live up to, not our internal preferences. And this isn't just a, a Christian thing, right? This is very much how societies work. Now, a couple of years ago, describing the uh, psychology today, uh, describing the various causes of shame, uh, they wrote a piece that noted that one of the main causes of shame is this notion of standards. And they, this is what it said. So that all of us have beliefs about what is an acceptable standard concerning actions, thoughts, and feelings. For example, at funerals, we know that laughing, expressing joy, or feeling glad that the person is dead is not the norm. In most neighborhoods, dog owners carry plastic bags when they walk their dogs. The violation of these standards produce shame. What is that? Why is that? Because standards can only be standards based on the external norms that have been established. We all have external norms to which we're trying to conform to. I mean, only the deranged have no concern for any standard or any violation of standards outside of themselves. You know, in a culture that insists on, you know, being what we all are to be our true selves, the blind spot of our culture is how culturally conditioned that pursuit actually is. The pursuit of being true to oneself is often a pursuit of meeting the expectations of others who have told us that that's the right way to live. It's a cycle. Because in the end, you can't determine your own purpose. Someone else is determining it for you, even if you claim that it's yours, it's not. We're all deeply conditioned. There is something external to ourselves that determines our standard. This is true with regards to simple things like funeral etiquette and dog walking, but it's especially true with issues of personal morality, of value, of purpose. 
when we can't live up to that purpose, whatever that purpose might be, we end up feeling shame and we feel rejection. And for Adam and Eve, their purpose and standard was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And they didn't live up to that purpose. And now they feel shame, they fear rejection, and so they hide. Because there is something they don't want seen when everything is laid bare. And to affirm the previous definition of shame, we all know the feeling of possible abandonment because we don't feel good enough. And as a result, we too hide in our areas of shame. But the shame uh, as a result of rebellion and, again, uh, and rejection against God and his purposes, that's not the whole story. Right? That's very much what's happening before God asks that question. If you remember, we're keeping that question central. What we need to also now consider is why God then approaches Adam and Eve with that question, where are you? Right? There's two things that I want to take a look at within that question. First, let's consider uh, two perspectives on uh, why God goes about asking that question. Now, on, the, on the one hand, that actually seems like a pretty silly question for God to ask. You know, if God is God, does he not know where they are? Well, think about it this way. Uh, I have two daughters, uh, and my, my youngest daughter used to do this um, when she was little. <sighs> she doesn't play these games with me anymore. But when she was little, she would love to, when I, when I would come home, she would love to go and hide from me. And she'd hear me come in the door, and the, the game was I had to find her. Now, let's be real, in a, in a Manhattan apartment, there really are not that many places to hide. And many times, I could tell exactly where she was as soon as I walked in the door. You know, I could see the, the backlit lump behind the curtain or the little feet sticking out behind the couch. But do you know what I would do? I would actually ask this question. Where are you? I don't see you. Where are you? And I don't ask it because I don't know where she is. I ask it as a means of drawing her out of her hiding place so that she'll come see me. God knows what happened in the garden. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. But biblical commentators, when looking at this question, actually note a softness in the question. I mean, again, think about it in terms of parenting. Why do parents ask these types of rhetorical questions? They're designed to draw the child out. God asks the question, where are you, as a means of saying, listen, Adam, Eve, I see you. You can't hide from me. Now come out and talk to me about what you've done. This question represents concern and affection for Adam and Eve. But on the other hand, God also is wanting to draw them out of their hiding place because not only is there love and affection, which there is, but there's also some serious problems that have now been created as a result of their disobedience. Consequences that need to be confronted now, their eyes have been opened to the evil. And the evil one is now preparing for them to see all kinds of things as a result of them, their eyes being opened. I mean, Adam and Eve, their children, and all generations of people now have seen things. And as a result of this sin, great depravities and sickness and death have entered the world. It began here. And the consequences have been devastating. The entire narrative of the Bible is unpacking the results of this moment. 
The biblical understanding of sin is that all the ills of humanity come from here because our once perfect union with God is broken. The perfect image of God in humanity has been obscured. Our innocence has completely disappeared. We now all fail to live up to the standard and the purpose of our creation, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And God asks this question as a way of drawing them out because this now needs to be dealt with. They failed as a result of their disobedience. These serious consequences has now left them deep in in shame and hiding. It's now involved all of creation has been broken as a result of what's taken place here. It left all of us with the continued consequences of their rebellion and justice. And as a result, we see all the ills of humanity. So if that was where the story ended, there would be a lot of despair amongst us. But there's actually something more that happens. Not only does God ask this question as a way of drawing them out, but there's also more that he accomplishes that we see happening after he asks the question. Lastly, there are two astounding verses in this passage that show what comes as a result of God's goodness. Because in the midst of their shame, God gives them a promise that one day the consequences of their disobedience would be undone, number one, and number two, that there would be full restoration of what had been lost in the garden that day. Let me show you what I mean. First, look at verse 15. Verse 15 is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first gospel. It's God speaking, of, uh, speaking to the serpent, saying to the serpent, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall strike his heel. Who is the he that will destroy the evil one? Who is the offspring of Eve who will undo what has been done? Well, Romans 5 tells us that though sin was brought into the world through one man, Adam, our redemption now comes through one man, that man being Jesus. Jesus is the he. He is the offspring of Eve who will one day crush the serpent's head. But the other thing that we see here is how he goes about doing it. Look at verse 21. We actually get a glimpse in verse 21 of how he will go about bringing redemption and restoration. You know, at this point in this mini saga in Genesis 3, what we see now is God covers them with skins and clothes them as a result of the shame of nakedness that they're experiencing. Up until this point, if you remember, Adam and Eve were desperately trying to cover themselves. And what we saw in the passage is they, were, they tried fig leaves, they tried hiding. This was the way to cover the, this shame that they were experiencing. But what's so significant about what we're seeing here is something that we actually know to be true. We know it to be true that we cannot actually remove our shame by hi- simply hiding away. Right? It is true that it's only true that when we have offended someone, that we need the one that we have offended to approach us in a way that reminds us that we're not going to be rejected. In other words, real healing comes when the one who was offended covers you. And in the garden, the offended one, 
God himself embraces them and takes a creature, an animal, to cover them. But what verse 15 alludes to, uh, verse 21, is it's merely a foreshadowing of a future day. What we see with Adam and Eve is a picture of what God's going to do many years down the line as well. When it will not be a creature that dies in order to cover the shame of humanity, but rather a day when it will be the creator, the son of God who will come and lay down his life in order to cover shame. I mean, Jesus, the sinless one who lived up to the standards, lived up to that chief end of man, the one who had no reason to hide or to ever feel shame. Second Corinthians 5 tells us that he who knew no sin becomes sin on the cross. He is stripped naked, fully exposed, completely vulnerable. In other words, our sin and shame are placed on Jesus. He bears the weight and the consequences of sin in his death. And then he goes to the grave, but we also know that he rises again, for in this resurrection he proves that sin and death have lost their power and that the promise of Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. But there's also a second part to that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. If you know it, it says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Here's the other part. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does Jesus take our sin, but he also gives us his righteousness. This is what theologians have called the great exchange, our sin for his perfection. In Christ, our sin no longer defines us, but rather in Christ, the perfection of Jesus now defines us. We no longer have to be clothed with fig leaves and dead animal skin and attempts to fulfill our own purposes or whatever we use to try and hide away from having fallen away from God's purposes. Now we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This is the means by which God restores all that was lost so that now we can be open in our areas of shame. We can be vulnerable with our failures and our insecurities. I mean, remembering Kirk Thompson's definition of shame, that it was the feeling of not being enough because we then fear uh, the impending abandonment that would come. But in Jesus, we don't have to be enough because Jesus, in his perfection, is enough. We don't have to fear abandonment. Why? Because in the, the words of theologian Bruce Walkie, when he was looking at this passage, he says this, that the gardener has not abandoned his garden. The proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love. In other words, he's not abandoning you. Rather, he is in pursuit of you right now, drawing you out of that hiding place. And we can be confident in knowing that God sees us and loves us. He knows us and accepts us because of Jesus. So I ask you the question, where are you? Are you still hiding? Are you trapped in shame? Because if you are, God is calling you out, extending you a promise and asking you to trust that promise, a promise that Jesus will take your shame and give you his righteousness. And so the question before us is, will we trust that promise? I hope you will. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you see us in our shame, 
You see us in our cycles of sin, our constant disobedience, our inability to trust you fully. But God, out of love, you don't leave us trapped in shame, but rather you pursue us. And you ask us that tender question, where are you? Because you desire to come near to us. You desire for us to come to you with our vulnerabilities, our insecurities, our failures. Because as we trust in Jesus, we can have confidence to know that we aren't rejected, we aren't abandoned, but rather we are embraced and accepted because Jesus is our righteousness. He is our perfection. He is the one who covers us. And so God, would you help us to see that truth as being for us, being for me, that I might be able to enjoy and embrace a relationship with you once again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.